Welcome to the Wellness Champions Network podcast. I'm host Sarah McGuinness. The Wellness Champions Network is a group of leaders from around the globe who are passionate about well-being. In the network, we learn, share and connect with colleagues and well-being experts alike. We believe that by working together, we can build a happier, healthier world where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. In this podcast, we're joined by Kate Connors. Kate is a registered psychologist and the leader of PwC Australia's Wellness Centre of Excellence. In this interview, Kate shares her experience in rolling out a remarkable mental health campaign. Called Greenlight to Talk, the campaign's aim was to dial up the dialogue on mental wellbeing across PwC Australia. Kate shares how the Greenlight to Talk program was developed, plus its goals and its successes. She also shares some of the challenges and her tips for other organisations looking to improve the mental health of their team. Um, my role is a combination of being an in-house psychologist for the partnership within the Australian firms. So that's approximately 700 to 750 partners. And in that side of my role, I'm, I'm more of a triage, trusted, confidential professional within the firm. So I don't do long-term psychological intervention per se, but I absolutely do do triage and a, and a bit of assessment and wellbeing coaching, uh, linking partners into external, more ongoing supports, depending on, on their situation and what's going to work best for them. So that's one part of my role. And then the other is more of a strategy and execution piece across programs and initiatives within the wellbeing strategy. You know, it's a fascinating time, isn't it, for anybody working in, in wellbeing and particularly in workplace wellbeing. The intersection between duty of care as people begin to reopen offices is, is a really complicated one, um, separate to the reintegration and the psychological adjustment, which will be an ongoing process, I think, for the community at large or for humanity, may I even say, um, over the next, you know, years ahead is potentially how we're going to have to look at this. When I first started at PwC Australia, um, you, know, uh, you know, in time you reach out to colleagues in other countries around the world because PwC is a network of firms, so it is a global brand for each territory is called, each country um, operates as its own entity. Uh, so I began to have conversations with other countries about what they were doing, particularly in regards to mental health. And it was with the UK firm that I discovered that they had implemented a program around their mental health work called Greenlight to Talk. Um, and they did that in about 2015, 2016. And, and the key premise that they were working to was around reducing stigma and the importance of having leaders within the firm speak to their own personal experiences. So when I heard about that, I was so impressed. I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. Um, but I was pretty new at PW Australia at that point. I, didn't ha I hadn't had, I guess, a tenure that meant that I had built relationships with certain leaders that meant that I could ask them almost to, to take such a role on and, and so it was a couple of years into my tenure after I you know developed a bit of a network of leaders who I had supported and that they had also come through a period of maybe ill health or significant challenge in their own family regarding a mental health issue through to full recovery back feeling really good again and in a place where they could talk to their own experience without it potentially impacting their own well-being at that point. That was a key factor in me thinking through, well, what's the right time for us to look to do something like this? 
Um, so yeah, that was the origins of it. So yeah, so I, I, it really goes back to the UK PwC firm and, and then Australia has taken an iteration of that. Um, and there are other territories around PwC's global network that also adopting a similar approach now. And what, you know, when you first brought up the idea of rolling out the program, what was the initial feedback or were there hesitations from the leadership group? There really wasn't. Um, and I think that that speaks to the fact that everybody knew at that time. So the leaders, you know, my leaders who I spoke to about it, everyone knew that the stigma piece was a real inhibitor in terms of where we wanted to take a sense of psychological safety and to really make sure that we had an approach where early intervention for seeking support was 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 a good foundation and stigma was a key sticking point around that so professional services firms highly ambitious individuals you know very very perfectionistic mindsets and personality traits very much culturally within professional services and this is not PwC exclusive by any means this is you know the whole professional services sector you know whatever the partners you know everyone looks to the partners and what the partners say and do and think and and try and emulate that as 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 a way of thinking well that's how my career will be able to progress if I want to become a partner is to emulate and roll and so us breaking through to create moments of conversation and vulnerability in this area was absolutely something that everyone went Kate what a great idea then the, the, uh, there were probably three key leaders that I spoke to at the time before I kind of just went about and made it happen and, and they were all, what a wonderful idea and make it happen. Fantastic. Yeah. So very fortunate for that type of support. The green light to talk is almost like a banner for our program around, for our program around mental health. So really there are three key objectives. One is to reduce stigma around mental health. Um, the second is to create really high levels of awareness within the, our workforce about what are the support options that people have should they need to take those support options up if they're experiencing some impact on their mental health. Um, and the third is that we are just, um, you know, the third objective is to positively promote the importance of us having conversations about mental health in the workplace and it not be something that we don't talk about. So, so they're the key three objectives. And in thinking through culturally um, what was going to be the most impactful way to hit those objectives, uh, we started very similar to the UK firm with starting with finding some partners who were prepared to share their own personal stories. Some of those stories were about their own personal periods or episodes of mental ill health and some of those stories were more personal in regards to um, family or friends. But that then created an environment where we were saying really openly within the firm, we can talk about these things, it can impact anybody, it can happen um, and it's just something that we all just need to talk about more and, and um, so that was the key that was our launch strategy. So we did videos with 13 partners. So that was a really um, exciting moment where the UK firm in terms of size when they launched was um, around 24,000 people. And they started their Green Light to Talk with nine partners. Yet here in Australia, we were at 7,000 people or 6,500 people and we started with 13 partners. So that was 
I thought really, because people were like, well, is 13 patterns going to be enough? And I was like, you guys started with only nine. And so, so we, and we did videos with each of those um, 13 partners. They um, shared why mental health was important to them and what their own personal experiences around mental ill health had been and just gave the narrative, gave the story. Um, and we put those videos um, in our central wellbeing platform for people to watch and um, to, or to use in team meetings to promote conversation. Uh, we did a um, we did a round the country roadshow, you know, with some live events again with those partners being there live for um, people to come along to that particular event and ask questions and get again some additional clarity on what the support options were within the firm. So we combined. Um, that kind of content. Um, so that was how we first started. That was year one. And then year two, there was always the intent to build on year one with a more high scale approach to people who had um, training in how to effectively respond to mental ill health challenges. We decided to go down the path of mental health first aid as a accredited training program um, and so we're now at something like I think 230 people um, so we're aiming to hit the three percent target that mental health first aid has set so that we can hopefully um, become a gold level employer in their skilled workplace program they've just got a, a little program that you have to meet certain criteria about strategy and execution and um, access to mental health third aiders, etc. Um, and at that point, we also combined in our priorities around providing support for people um, who may be experiencing domestic or family violence. So we also provided our advocates with, with training on how to effectively respond to those types of issues as well. So we were creating one green light to talk community within the firm that people could reach out to as an additional support option to you know, the wellness team to our EAP service and to HC or other trusted supports that people might might want to talk to. Yeah, so that's really what it is. It's more of a way of packaging up conversations and support um, around mental health. And those role models were really crucial, uh, you know, as part of it, both in terms of the partners and then the mental health first aid, as I imagine, to start to take on a, an advocate champion role as well. How did you select those people? So the partners I approached, that was a little bit like me kind of thinking through where I knew from my role as the internal psychologist support, where people were at um, and any conversations that we might have had over the journey around their level of interest, you know, during the, those couple of years I mentioned that the UK firm had done that and tried to gauge kind of level of interest from various partners if they would be up for taking on such a role. So that was how we did the partner piece. Um, I asked all partners to then also go through a clinical assessment just to see where they were at with their own mental health to make sure there wasn't any residual depressive or anxiety issues at such a significant level that maybe they shouldn't be taking on that kind of support role and particularly such a highly visible one within the context of the firm. So mindful of those kinds of triggers and challenges for protecting their own robustness and, and, and health. Um, so that was, and so we did a one day's training with those partners on boundaries, um, 
how to have effective conversations, support options. So that was, and they also bonded together as a as a team over that day. For the high scale, for the for the rest of the advocate community, they that their role isn't the same kind of storytelling kind of role. That's not really what their that's not what their role is. So from a selection process for them, we asked that the businesses, because people put in expressions of interest if they wanted to play that role, then we needed to have a bit of a look over it at a team level of, you know, seniority, so grade and gender and, you know, you know tenure at the firm, different things like that, um, to make sure that we had a good mix, a nice diverse mix across across the people who, were, who wanted to, to play the role. We also, uh, you know, did say, you know, probably best that people don't have any ongoing health issues right now, um, particularly mental health issues right now, um, as a duty of care for them in terms of taking on a role like that. Also really conscious of relationships and performance within the business. So if someone was experiencing a bit of struggle with their own performance or something like that, that was something that we also asked uh, people to take into consideration because taking on an additional role like this, um, you know, was probably not going to then set that person up for success. So, um, so yeah, that were the kinds of things that we considered and asked the businesses to reflect on before they then confirmed nominations to go ahead and be trained through the mental health first aid process and the um, domestic and family violence response training as well. And we've got a question, was bullying wrapped up in that as well, support for bullying? Um, we didn't specifically call out bullying. It was more, um, we, we're really kind of trying to more frame this in the sense of what are the emotional responses and reactions that people may have um, and how to support those no matter what the trigger. So we weren't kind of distilling it down into, other than the domestic and family violence element, I can, but that um, has some particular nuances and resources and supports. So the internal workplace bullying, people would absolutely be linked in if comfortable to um, human capital and, and those types of more formal processes around that, yeah. But from a support perspective, then the advocate is there for the emotional support if needed. But primarily they're there as a referral channel into professional supports, but they are um, a trusted um, and confidential ear should people want them at peer level. And those people have been trained to understand that the referral on into professional support is, a, is really the, a really, really critical part of their role. And as a result of the work over the last three years, what are some of the results that you've seen and, and how have you measured that? So it's always an interesting one, isn't it, in the wellbeing area, the old ROI, that, that old chestnut. Um, so in, we've actually recently been doing a, a reflection and, and a refresh of um, our mental health strategy. And although we don't have quantitative figures <laughs> to say, point at that, that's a success marker, um, we have got very clear feedback through focus groups and stakeholder consultation about how positively the Green Light to Talk approach has impacted PwC's culture. So people know about it, people talk about it, people are proud of it. Um, people have described that they do feel more psychologically safe to have conversations. So, so I think that's a key part of it. At a more quantitative level, we have seen an increase in rates of access to our EAP provider since the launch of Greenlight to Talk. 
but I'm not sure if we can, you know, we haven't done such a statistically kind of managed process that we can absolutely put our hand on heart and say it's as a consequence of Greenlight to Talk. Um, but yes, absolutely. Um, we are noticing that our people are accessing the EAP support more, which is what we wanted. So that's good. So the green ribbons were part of our launch campaign, I guess. This is where I learned the absolute value of comms people and marketing people. I'd never had a team of um, professionals with those expertise to work with before we launched Greenlight to Talk. And I was like, oh my goodness, is this how, I, how people have impact? So we had green ribbons and we asked our people to take a green ribbon on the day that it was launched. In all our Greenlight to Talk launch events, there were green ribbons available for people to wear on their lapel and shirts and, and things. Advocates tend to wear a ribbon around the, around the well, when we were in workplaces. Um, but then after people had done the training, our mental health first aiders got a green lanyard with the mental health first aid on it. So we were encouraging our people to wear the green lanyard. So yeah, that green theme is certainly being part of the overall profile and promotion and awareness in terms of how we've been packaging green light to talk internally. Yeah. To be honest, the barriers weren't cultural barriers. If I reflect on what were the hardest moments, it was more in execution. And that's primarily just because it's a large organisation and all the complexities of engagement and follow through and clarity on who's doing what and sticking to deadlines so that lists can be collated and vouchers can be purchased. So it was really more on that side of things, Sarah. There weren't... There weren't cultural um, barriers. So it was more around the execution. And I think that that's kind of not really a barrier in a way. It's just that, you know, everyone knows that in, in larger organisations to, to execute on things effectively and um, in a coordinated manner can sometimes be a challenge when you've got things happening at the centre of an organisation, being rolled out into vertical structures in terms of whether it's a line of service or, you know, some kind of... So that that was more how to keep all of those dots joined and everybody kind of working to deadlines. Yeah, so that was just... And overcoming those was more just continuing to persist and communication and rechecking in around clarity of role and in rollout and those types of things. So, yeah... Mm. And, so, and do you think having that leadership buy-in made a difference? Because that's one of the other things that often comes up around wellbeing is when it gets added to a role. So people are already doing their day-to-day -day jobs and then wellbeing gets added. And then consequently, when things get busy, it's the first thing to fall off. So it sounds to me like it was, it was so well embedded that it wasn't sort of an extra thing. It felt like something people wanted to be part of. Is that a good way? Um, I I, well, I think that that was one of the challenges on execution is that because it was a reasonably big project to, you know, through the whole of the organisation to ask at team level, at business unit level in, a particular, in all locations to reflect on who were the people from their teams who had expressed an interest, um, did they meet the, the selection criteria that we had suggested you know, how many people had actually um, put their hand up. If there were little pockets where no one had, we needed to go back, encourage leaders to have more conversations. So, so that toing and froing piece um, was a add-on extra part of people within the human capitals, um, within the human capital structures role. So yes, absolutely, it's an extra. And so um, that it was more of a project management piece attached to that because ongoing 
those challenges aren't there because then it's embedded. It was just, you know, some of that working through those pretty natural tensions in a project that's time limited is, you know, how to, how to make all of, pull all of those things together. Mm. Mm. And then now we've sort of moved into this COVID-19 world. Uh, are you still referring to the green light to talk as part of the response? Absolutely. Um, so we, really activated, I guess, at another level, that community very early on after COVID, um, COVID happened. Uh, so we have probably, in the early days, we were catching, I was kind of hosting a catch up with that community every fortnight. Now it's probably every three to four weeks, but just to really make sure that that community felt empowered and encouraged to in team meetings, to be reminding people of resources, um, having conversations, promoting the importance of conversations, putting little agenda items on team meetings and having a little pack to, to talk to or a resource to share um, and reminding people of their roles. So we did that very early on and therefore in our ongoing kind of catch-ups, we're calling them community connections, um, every three or four weeks now, it's more of like an opportunity to do a bit of a pulse check. What's happening? What are the types of conversations you're having? What are the key things on people's minds? Is there anything you need? So it's played a really critical and helpful role in COVID. Mm. And then going forward, where do you see the Greenlight to Talk program going in the months and years ahead? Um, so we are really keen to continue it, obviously. Um, it's going to become one of the, I guess, just the way that we do business is it, and continue to embed it. Um, I do want to do a refresh of the partner level sponsors because we don't have great diversity in that group um, in terms of non-English speaking background or, or diverse cultural background. Um, we could also do with some more female partners in that, um, which is an interesting thing that I noticed is that when I approached some female partners, they weren't as comfortable necessarily as their male partner colleagues to, to play that role. So I think that speaks to the challenge for women to continue to, to just be so mindful of what will people think of me? Will this, you know, what's the impression of me as a leader and as, a, as someone who can cope? So I still want to kind of face into that. We need to sort that one through um, and continue to, to tap away at that one. So, and as I said, we do want to continue to reflect what kind of support do the, does that community need? Are there additional supports? Are there additional, so we want to continue to enhance and refine um, to make sure that we just continue to evolve it and embed it into the way that we do business as it pertains to supporting people with their mental health. So it's, it's very important to reflect on where your own organisation is at with its culture around broader wellbeing discussions. Also be really honest about the level of sponsorship that you will be getting from leaders around it. It's very difficult to try and encourage other people to talk openly about mental health issues or mental ill health if there is no role modelling around that type of um, storytelling um, at senior levels. So I think just being honest with yourself about is that level of sponsorship there before embarking on a whole program of work that doesn't maybe get any, and then you kind of think, well, really, it's not getting anywhere because I just don't, we're not at that point yet, or we don't have the executive level sponsorship around this. Um, and I think the other piece, which is critical, is working really, really closely with your professional 
support from your EAP service. So we, I, you know, this was a journey side by side with our EAP provider. Um, we really needed to keep them in the loop around this because we were hoping it would lead to an increase in referrals. We wanted to, they, they are one of our green light to talk support options because they are the professionals green light to talk support option separate to internal um, options. So really kind of partnering and working really closely with your EAP provider on it and to, to use that as a moment to elevate their profile because really they are one of the key supports that, that as an employer, you want your people to understand and to engage with. It's really helpful. And one of the things I pulled out there, and she mentioned this early on, was around those relationships. You know, you said really early on, you were already embedding those relationships. And it sounds to me like there was, that trust was there. So these leaders perhaps, do you think, felt they were able to come forward because that trust was there and all that pre-work had been done? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess I hope so. Um, I, I do think that, see, this is where it's a, an interesting one for me with my role because I play that dual role, that I had a very privileged um, opportunity to support people on, you know, vulnerable content matter. Um, and, and when you do work with people on in those types of times, you do develop a much... You do, you do, don't you? More, a deeper relationship, a deeper level of trust. Um, and so when I did ask if they would be interested in doing this, they were absolutely, Kate, whatever I could do to help. That was, that tended to be how they responded, yeah. Yeah, and you just got to kind of read all of those things, don't you? Um, it's before you, you really pitch something or embark on a whole lot of work. <laughs> that <laughs> um, can be a bit heartbreaking if it doesn't then get the traction that you were hoping it would get and things like that. So, um, so yeah, that would be my, my, my advice for what it's worth. And in terms of the storytelling, I just want to pick up on that as well. What advice would you give around developing the narratives that each of those leaders shared? Because I imagine it wasn't just to get up and a talk to camera. Yeah. There would have been pre-work. Yeah, there was. So um, we, we absolutely spoke with those partners around that was kind of connected into the boundaries kind of conversation. Um, but there was also a lot of work with the comms team to support them on that in terms of them thinking through what is it that they want to share, what are the key messages that they want to, to, to promote, um, but also being mindful of you know, as soon as you do storytelling, then that does impact your family and it might then mean that your client's here. And, you know, so just really making sure that they thought through um, really carefully, like really informed consent, I guess, in terms of embarking on sharing personal stories. Mm. And I think, recall, some of the stories were personal and some you were sharing looking after another person yeah. as well. So I imagine yeah. the consent rolls absolutely. on yeah yeah absolutely so any of the partners who were more speaking about the support role that they'd played for a wife or you know absolutely that was you need to go back and and get that um because that's a family decision or that's a relationship kind of decision rather than just your decision yeah i think well, we've had a broader conversation happening and during mental in i'm not sure what in us in new zealand whether there is a dedicated month or week for mental health month or something like that. But in Australia, it's in October. Um, and we have been, um, before Greenlight to Talk, also having um, 
or encouraging our people to check in on their mental health. So we have been having that conversation around normalising the mental health continuum that at any point of a day almost, depending on what's going on, you can notice that your level of reactivity um, can be different um, and that it moves into more of a clinical zone depending on severity and length of, and duration of symptoms, et cetera. So probably I think my answer to that question is that we had already set a bit of the tone of that conversation, that it's normal and important for everybody to check in on their own mental health so that you can get support more quickly if your mental health begins to deteriorate rather than leaving it go on and on and on and then it turns into quite a significant mental ill health period so that's probably how i think we did that it's not uncommon that um our there are a couple of people on my team who um do the one-on-one -on -one support for our people i tend to focus on the partner group but that people will say i thought that i should reach out because of or they yeah so that is um that is now pretty common or that people will reference uh, it's really important that we're talking about this and green light to talk so it's become which is what we want isn't it it's that it's it's almost like become part of the vernacular around in our well-being conversations um, but when we're talking mental health it's the green light to talk banner kind of is is the language that's used yeah, so I hope, again, I hope that mm. answers the, the question, yeah. Mm. And I've got one too, another one thinking about that. Is it been something that's been integrated through the entire employee journey as well? So in terms of inductions and even at the recruitment phase, is it right at the beginning? And we'd probably, we, we need to be a bit better at that. I think that's still a bit ad hoc. Um, so that's one of the things that in our mental health strategy review, we're kind of really conscious of how, with what kind of rigour is that happening at the moment? Um, so yeah, that is, it's definitely mentioned, but the degree to which it's mentioned and the value of the way it's mentioned and the depth of conversation at induction, et cetera. Um, and we also want to really focus on how the concept of checking in on your own mental health and having regular periods of check-in um, is also integrated into, you know, reward and recognition um, moments and conversations, those types of things. So really um, having real confidence that throughout the people touch points that um, the embedding is at the level that we would think it needs to be to have that really substantial systemic impact. How did you get staff to check in on their mental health and what are the tools that you're using to collect data? So we um, found a provider that has an online platform for doing that. So that was the, the way that we did that. There are now more and more emerging tools, um, platforms to do that. So by scale um, is obviously the, the best way to, to go about that. So yeah, that was our approach that uh, was a validated tool. It also had a wearable technology element to it for measuring sleep cycles and impact on sleep and as, as a diagnostic tool for early indicator of a mental ill of mental mental ill health. So yeah, that was um, that was our approach, our approach there. So large, mainly in our in our written launch material, it talks about the importance of talking about mental health. 
So, because that is the continuum, that it's when people are experiencing a, a time of being unwell is when they are experiencing mental ill health. So, it's about not saying, oh, someone's got a mental health issue <laughs> at the moment because everyone's got a mental, everyone's got mental health. It's about where your mental health is at at that moment on the continuum is the language that I encourage. And mental fitness is certainly something that we've, um, that some people prefer and will kind of use. It's, and I think that's right. You know, I get that's where, um, you know, the intersection of a professional view with a communications expert and what kind of lands best and all of those things are, are really helpful. Yeah, I think ultimately all of those language choices are about us reducing the stigma around mental well-being in any frame and connecting it to the fact that our physical health can be on a continuum. Um, we know that if we put effort into our physical health by increasing exercise, reducing alcohol, increasing healthy food intake, our physical health will improve. So it's it's trying to leverage that same those same concepts in a mental health continuum kind of idea. We do have a broader Be Well program that um, it kind of depends on the leader and the team and all those things in terms of to what regularity they would do those types of encouragements. And, but, but the current platform that we have for that is a 12-month licence and people can go into that at any time and do a check-in on themselves. So that's part of where we were hoping um, to get people's level of understanding, like just like going to the doctor for a GP check, you can do a mental health check. So same again, same kind of concepts. I remember going to an event here in Melbourne a number of years ago, it was probably four or five years ago, where a research project that had been, um, it was a collaboration between Melbourne Business School and SEEK, the jobs platform. And they had done some research into the area of mental health in workplaces and what works in terms of promotions and profile, et cetera. And the thing that was really important for me in my um, a bit of a light bulb moment was that a data point that spoke to something like um, when people were asked, where would you, where are you most likely to first share that you're experiencing some impact on your own mental wellbeing, who would it be? And most people said it would be a peer. So it was something like 65% of people said, and please don't quote me on that because I'm actually not very good at remembering numbers, and, but I know it was a really impactful number and I thought, oh, isn't, how did I, you know, and so therefore that's what was really important in terms of thinking through the broader strategy around Green Light to Talk is to not just leave it, leave it at leader level. It was really clear from that research that unless you've got a level of literacy, mental health literacy, safety and comfort within your teams and colleagues, then that's a real gap in terms of the, the support and in terms of people being able to access some, uh, have a trusted conversation. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Wellness Champions Network, head along to myhealthrevolution.co.nz and follow the links to subscribe. If you're in the network, thanks again and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.